Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello there. So interesting today. My full agitator role was on because I first noticed Barnabas when we went backwards and forwards on a Norman Foster article. I took Norman Foster's defense. I'm sure he needed me to defend him, not. And, but also I've come to sort of respect what Barnabas is up to and what he's doing and seeing his rise in our industry sort of slowly but surely since the last interaction. I've noticed a lot of trade press have been sort of interested and sort of seeking his opinion. So this should be a really interesting interview for me because I'm conflicted in this discussion, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, today's uh, guest earned a bachelor's degree in history to the University of Oxford, then a master's degree in history of medieval architecture through the uh, Cortland Institute of Art at the University of London, and then followed up with a PhD in the history of architecture through the University of Cambridge. Today, he's a uh, senior lecturer in architecture at the University of Liverpool, and we're definitely grateful to have him on the show. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, Barnabas Calder. I got to tell you, I envy your path for sure as a historian of architecture and uh, energy. Had a short exposure to that when uh, Professor uh, Bjarni Olsen from the Danish Technical University and Professor Kim from Seoul University, the three of us did a piece for the Ashray Journal on the history of reading, heating, and cooling. And the literature review, which took about a year, year and a half, was like jump, you know, taking a bite out of a juicy mango. It was absolutely awesome to, to read that old stuff and to go dig into the archives. But the better part of it was actually going to visit some of the old archaeological sites that we had written about. And that really was sort of the icing on the cake. So if I had another career, it would be yours. <laughs> and, uh, and I love what you're doing. In 2021, you released a book, Architecture from Prehistory to the Climate Emergency. That's quite the title and quite the uh, the timeline. Tell our audience what drew you to that uh, fascinating journey. Yeah, thank you. Well, I started out with defending brutalist architecture, the heavy concrete of the 1960s. So my first book is a surprising one for a, a later environmental <laughs> agitator in praise of concrete. <laughs> and then um, I started my big architectural history, my sweeping architectural history, with the question, how did today's concerns project back into the past? If you take a question like the central one of architecture today, which is how much energy does a building use, and you project it backwards, what do you get? And I did a little back of the envelope calculation on the Pyramid of Khufu, the biggest ancient monument of all, well over 5 million tons of stone heaped up over the course of 10 to 20 years requiring 78 million days of human labor to, to build it. Wow. And I found that if you turn that into an energy calculation, it's less than the lifetime energy consumption of seven average Americans today. What? Wow. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. So once I'd done that, the rest was a kind of thrilling downhill ski slope. That It was all incredibly fast moving and exciting and yeah, everywhere I've looked, the story has just continued to flesh itself out and expand. Every corner of world architecture from every period 
turns out to have these very, very close one-to-one relationships between the energy context of the time and what they built. Wow. Now, you weren't thinking about that when you were in grade 10, were you? (laughs) (laughs) No. I got into architectural history because studying in Oxford, it's full of amazing buildings. And I just found them fascinating and wonderful. And there was a special subject option on late 17th and early 18th century architecture, of which there's a lot in Oxford. I spent a, a lovely summer holiday with a good friend driving around obscure country houses all over the place. And yeah, just got really hooked on it as a kind of glorified hobby and have managed to somehow or other earn a living from it so far since then. Now, I just want to drop back to that sort of energy, back of the envelope, energy calculation you were talking about there. That is pretty mind-blowing, 78 million hours in seven seven households in America. That is... Seven individuals. Seven individuals. God, that is nuts. So you're sort of talking there about a relationship between energy and architecture and, and construction or development. So is there a sort of relationship that holds all the way back if you if you go backwards and forwards? Yep. The first building to leave substantial traces is a sign of how extremely circular and sustainable most hunter-gatherer architecture has always been, that there's probably 400,000 years of missing buildings before the first ones that leave a trace because they're made of things that are naturally occurring in the area and then they just disappear completely after they're finished being used. But the first to leave substantial traces is about 14,000 years ago in Ukraine, as it now is. And it's houses built of mammoth bones and covered with reindeer hides for people who were there in order to hunt mammoth and reindeer. So they built out of their energy byproducts. Yeah. And they built in order to keep in the heat of their fire because it's a cold place. And they went there in the first place in order to get these highly calorific large animals. So the primitive hut that architectural historians have always been obsessed about turns out to be food waste to keep in the heat of a fire because energy shapes everything. The title I wanted for the book was Form Follows Fuel, which was seen as being a little bit too niche by the publishers for understandable reasons. I tried it out actually with a survey of non-architect friends through Facebook and all the non-architects said, uh and all the architects said, yeah, you've got to call it Form Follows Fuel. I can say, uh, I'm all in on that is, one. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. You know, the because um, of uh, Form Follows function, obviously. Yeah. the That is interesting. So, again, I'm a history geek. One of my flippant remarks in when I was promoted, I'm a big fan of radiant heating and cooling. In North America, that's like being, that's like selling leprosy, quite frankly, right? So, so my my off the cuff remark whenever I got challenged of it, a, a lot of the questions would be, "Well, this new technology is untested." I go, "New? No. <laughs> I put up a picture of a Roman villa, a ruin of a Roman villa, right?" But you're substantiating my point there. I love that. So, you know, my thing is Romans are engineers with spears, right? They kill you and then they build nice stuff, but they would bring that technology to it. But like the 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 Roman radiant heating systems, you know, the aqueducts and all that. But so the energy quotient of that, right? So there's there's a difference between the energy quotient of say, you know, a house with tusks and skin versus say a Roman building, which is quarried stone, mortar, steam. You know, does does that energy relationship still stand between them two? 
Yep, completely. The, the reason Rome is so weirdly high energy yeah. is because it firstly coincided with a period in which a, there was a climate optimum, in other words, fertility of crops around the Mediterranean basin became extremely good for a period. In particular, Egypt had the perfect pattern of flooding for several centuries on the on the trot, making the Nile its most fertile, and it's always been astoundingly fertile. And Rome, of course, conquered it. There's almost nothing left in Rome itself from before the conquest of Egypt. It's almost all in the massive building boom that followed that, because Rome was importing enormous quantities of food. At one stage, they were feeding for free half the people in Rome on the emperor's dollar because it you know, famously kept political stability to keep feeding people. And these enormous grain imports to Rome meant that it supported a population of a million who didn't have to farm for a living. And therefore, that million people can do whatever you want them to. It's not just the one third of them or so who were enslaved people who had to do more or less whatever whatever they were told. It was also the urban poor who were the majority who worked for somewhere around the subsistence level where if you came, they were paid just enough to feed themselves and get back again tomorrow strong enough to keep working. And they still, if their family, if they wanted to support a family, other members of the family had to earn subsidiary money to pay for their for extra food. And that's totally normal across the whole of the agrarian period that unskilled building laborers work for the price of their food or directly for the food itself. So that means that if you want to do something labor intensive in an agrarian system, a farming economy, it's incredibly cheap. Whereas if you want to use heat for anything, it's very expensive because heat in an agrarian system requires wood to grow or other plant matter to grow very slowly, locking up land as it does so. So if you have a big population somewhere like London, 10,000 people in a city as far north as London in medieval conditions required 10,000 hectares of wood in order to sustainably furnish their firewood supplies. So the city size limit further north than the Mediterranean is very small because you can't heat it in winter without choking out your crop growing area with mm. firewood. So that pattern of of Rome breaking a lot of producing a lot of firsts, breaking a lot of long established rules and limits is because they have the biggest energy imports uh, that the world had ever seen up to that date and has produced the biggest city with the biggest population of people who were free to do something other than farming. And when I say free, I don't mean that they were free by their standards, but from the point of view of the elite, they were free to build, they were free to work on all sorts of things. And the technology levels therefore shot up and the total amount of work being done became enormous, hence the ridiculous quantity and size of monuments they produced. That is nuts. So takeaway from that is where you have a surplus of energy or, or an availability of high-density energy sources, you tend to overbuild or expand or, or leave monuments. You know, So we're, we're, we're just coming out of a very high-intensity energy age, right? I hope so. <laughs> no sign of it yet. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the with labor, it's even more, it's not just that you do because you can. With when, when it's a context of agrarian societies, they have very steep social hierarchies and the people at the top fear people having the time to think further down the pyramid. And so if you have the population of Egypt 
sitting idle during the flooding period, it's much more harmless having them spend 78 million days putting you up a pyramid than it is allowing them to sit there and wonder why you have all the money. <laughs> that is so right. true. The old bread and circuses, the Romans, man, they, nothing's new under the sun, right? Well, that's what you know. we found when we did our research work for our paper that uh, you know the Romans were very good at stealing other people's ideas and embellishing them and making them better. But, you know, Adam, like even that discussion on Radiant, like there is literature that makes reference to heated earth that goes back over 10,000 years ago. Way back, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, there was a, one of the more, more interesting ones was an archaeological dig up in the Aleutian Islands in Alaska that uh, has been carbon dated to, I think it's 3500 BCE, I guess it is. And, and uh, that form that they used, you know, where they excavated a, a trench and basically it was a stone hut they built it up because that's what they had up there to build with right very little lumber that they had and the lumber that they did use they needed it for firewood you know but they drafted the smoke in the trenches underneath these stone the stone covered trenches and of course that radiated up into the space and we see that style all around that part of the world whether it's in korea russia china uh, that style but we were never able to find a link, a cultural link between those inhabitants up in the Aleutians and those on the other side of the world. So maybe there's a project for you, Barnabas. <laughs> you don't, things get invented multiple times if the same yeah. conditions arise. So when you look at, for example, the whole structure of agrarian society, the last contact between the people of Peru and Aztec Mexico and the people of Spain before Cortez's arrival was when both were hunter-gatherers. And both, when they hit a certain level of ability to cultivate energy-rich crops, both independently invented the hierarchical empire with sky gods totally separately. And even with things like the coincidental invention of pyramids in both the, the Mesoamerican and Egyptian context, which is seen by conspiracy theorists on the internet as being a sign of aliens or early contact or something. And actually, it's completely clearly very rational thing to do with large amounts of stone if you want to build durable monument with the simplest available engineering and lots and lots of cheap labor. And you see the same patterns of simultaneous invention sometimes or non-synchronous but totally independent invention of everything from farming to pyramids to heating systems because people optimize the technologies they have available to them and technologies optimized end up getting to the same point if they're the same set of facilities available to them and the same aim. It's an emergent yeah. property of technology at the time, right? Yeah. Well, and we saw that carry on through civilizations because during the Civil War, the, many of the hospitals were heated the same way. And they called it the California plan. And we speculated it was because when Asia migrated to the West Coast of North America, obviously they brought their cultures with them. Many of them migrated north for the gold rush, but many of them also came across to the east and brought with them that knowledge. And so, yeah, it was it was really cool to see that form of conditioning spaces around the world carry through hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, really. Yeah. 
I mean, one of the great pleasures of, of looking in detail at how buildings are produced and run is that buildings tend to be beyond the domestic. Buildings are, are very often brought into being by the very powerful, but they're built by the much less powerful. And people continue to build the way they know how to build. So when you look at things like colonial churches in Mesoamerica, they pick up lots and lots of building and stoneworking methods from pre-Columbian civilization, because that's just how you do it. And these kind of unintended but fascinating continuities tell you a lot about who's doing what, I guess, in, in, a, in a specific building context. You just think about this, right? So your book is from prehistory to climate emergency, right? Everyone goes, oh, that's, that's what's that about? You know, it's huge. But there is a link, right? Because buildings, they're status symbols, they project power, they're about keeping people cowed, they're also about shelter, health. You know, they can even become they're things where you generate money and stuff. Like they just cover everything, right? Yeah. So they can be all things to everybody in society all at once. I'm a big fan of history. I always struggle that history is not such a more important subject. You know, if you want to understand what's going on now, look back and see what's back, yeah. happened, right? It's not a mystery when you stop drawing the dots there. And, you know, building and the built environment is no different, is what you're saying. And we're actually very lucky to have this. I mean, you guys on the kind of um, active servicing wing of architecture, I suppose, uh, have fewer have well have no <laughs> zero carbon precedence but the rest of us in in the architectural world you know if you're looking at materials or construction techniques we've got 14,000 years of zero carbon architecture before the uh, very brief but extremely violent flourishing of fossil fuels in architecture yeah. uh, so unlike something like aviation which is trying to invent ways of decarbonizing a thing that's never that only came into existence because of refined petrochemicals. Yeah, and yeah. people had dreamt of powered flight for hundreds or thousands of years, and they only could achieve it when there was a fuel dense enough and fluid enough. And architecture's the opposite; that we've got thousands of years of really, really low, low energy input, locally sourced materials, and passive thermal comfort conditions, which we are systematically overlooking at the moment in, in most of our attempts to decarbonize. And we're sort of mumbling about taking a few percent out of the, uh, the carbon emissions of cement, uh, rather than thinking, well, why do we have to use this stuff at all? Why can't we go back to what, after all, clearly does work because there are buildings thousands of years old standing on non-concrete foundations. So why do we now feel that the only possible way of building foundations is to dig a huge hole and pour enormous amounts of concrete into it. Mm -hmm. This is sort of like half dependency is part of this, right? We're doing what, we, what we've done yeah. immediately behind us yeah. and, and forgetting what we did behind that, right? Yes, exactly. The great shift in history was the fossil fuel shift, which meant that rather than labour being cheap and heat being expensive, heat became cheap and labour became expensive. Yeah. And that switch is very quick after the serious scale of fossil fuel exploitation in, this, in 17th century Britain. And you immediately start to see a move from a tradition of highly crafted timber architecture to throw it up as quick as you can, fired brick architecture, 
from uh, shutters to glass windows because heat is suddenly cheap and so you you why not yeah. it becomes notable by the late 17th century it's notable that somebody has that there are areas still poor enough that the peasants don't have glass in their windows in england whereas a hundred years earlier the richest people in the country showed off by having windows at all and the quality is terrible if you look at a tudor window they're unbelievably poor quality and they were the ultimate status symbol of the very rich in architectural terms. Mm. So that switch is incredibly quick from cheap labor to cheap heat. And ever since that switch was completed with the steam engine becoming seriously viable and therefore labor becoming the kind of cumbersome, awkward equivalent of coal-fueled industry, ever since that switch, the architectural world has been really aggressively substituting heat for labor wherever it can. And that, that's what we inherit. We inherit, uh, depending where you are in the world, between three centuries and almost no time at all of that substitution. Wow. That's, uh, God, this has got my brain going already. Because <laughs> 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 what you're talking about is, as coal and that coal is dense energy form, right? Coal and steam were basically the instigators of this real chat for rapid change. Yeah. With all sorts of enormous implications for everything. I mean, the, the biggest, simplest fact about that switch is the sheer amount of energy available. So a 19th century coal miner could extract 2,500 times more surplus energy than a medieval farmer. Wow. So the total amount of energy in a, in a pre-fossil fuel context is the amount of energy that crops can photosynthesize from the sun and that can in a given year, and that can then be converted by either fire or digestion into something else, some useful form of energy. And that's 1% or so that gets photosynthesized at best, and a small proportion of that that gets digested and turned into anything useful. So it's a really tiny amount of energy, even from a large area, compared with when you start to dig it out of the ground. And you get these enormous amounts of energy without any area at all being used for it, essentially, because coal mining is a small hole at ground level. Yeah, The whole of the rest of the ground level is still available for farming. The need for firewood is gone. So that's another huge area that you can either keep for timber or turn into farmland. And you get this kind of spiraling series of technological advances in increasing the productivity of the farmland. So that even the farming energy of the industrial age is enormously greater thanks to fossil fuel inputs like the um, the Harbour Bosch process, which yeah. uses, uh, I can't remember, something like 1% of the world's fossil fuels, but to produce a, a truly enormous amount of increased uh, food productivity. Yeah. Everything just keeps going up. So things you think of as being old technologies that went away again, actually, when you look at it, they just rise less fast within the fossil fuel centuries. So the peak year for canal transport in Britain was after the Second World War. You think of it as a 17th and 18th century technology peaking in the 19th century, and actually everything just keeps going up and up and up all the time. It's just that trains go up faster and then and then other forms of transport, road transport shoots up. But canals continue to rise. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Are you struggling with paperwork, spreadsheet overload, and project management? Then Blue Rhythm is the solution to help you. 
Streamline your commissioning and project management process. Go paperless. Increase efficiency and save money. Blue Rhythm is commissioning and project management software by practitioners for practitioners. Adapting to your workflows and processes and doing things your way. Blue Rhythm provides painless and fast onboarding by bringing your existing workflows, forms, checklists, and issues logs into Blue Rhythm for you. You can use their pre-built templates to customize your commissioning workflows. And Blue Rhythm can fully handle the transition from your current software platform. Blue Rhythm is secure, scalable, and reliable, backed by amazing support, and accessible 24-7 on any Windows, iOS, or Android device. Why are you still using paper and hard-to-control spreadsheets? Start your free Blue Rhythm account today at bluerhythm.com. And now, back to the show. So let's just bring this up to date. I do want to talk about um, nuclear energy, but let's talk about how we first sort of interacted. So there was a, um, so Sir Norman Foster, this is an international podcast. So Sir Norman Foster, if you don't know who he is, he's one of the most celebrated British architects. He has a very international portfolio. He builds famously airports all over the world and many. He did the Berlin Reichstag. You know, his, his, his footprint is huge in every sense of the word. <laughs> Sorry, that was an accidental thing there. But, you know, he's undeniable. He He's arguably the Sir Christopher Wren of his day, right? He has immortality through his portfolio. And there was an architect's journal put a, um, architect's journal in the UK put an article out sort of celebrating him, sort of giving him the nod. And then it was posted on LinkedIn. And then there was, uh, Barnabas was one of them, but he was not the only one, was sort of did a little bit of a rebuttal on it. And I'm old, right? I'm nearly 60. I'm a boomer. Calm down, boomer. And um, I sort of felt the need to jump in a little bit and defend Norman Foster. Not, I mean, not that he needs defending it. (laughs) He's big enough and ugly enough to sort himself out. But I thought his body of work was being attacked. And my view on that was, and the reason I jumped in was defense, I've been a development project management surveyor. And I've employed and run design teams and architect teams. So I'll tell you, this is the nub of my theory, right? Everyone's seen Downton Abbey, right? Downton Abbey, there's a people who live upstairs, the people who live downstairs, right? So the Lord of the Manor rings the bell. That person ringing the bell is land securities, British land, all the big developers, right? They ring the bell, they have the money. They own the land, they have a monopoly on that land. So the butler comes upstairs. So that's not the architect. That's the project manager or the development manager, right? That person's below stairs. The architect is like the underbutler in this story. And the engineers are like the footman and the scullery. <laughs> the people who drive decision-making and really decide what goes up and what doesn't are the people with the money, the malords, the British lands, the land sex, the pension funds, the Oxford properties, right? And I'm not dissing yeah. them. I used to work for these people. You know, and then there's no, not bad people. They have good intentions, but ultimately... I didn't think, I thought Norman Foster was being granted powers and being criticized for things he didn't really have control over. So um, anyway, that that was my reason I jumped in. I have young kids. I hope to have grandkids one day. I really do care about how things go forward. So I'm not alien to what, you know, the argument you were putting forward there. But I think the anger, is it anger? I don't know. The criticism is not directed at the right people. I don't think the architects are as powerful as people think they are. 
I'll let you I roll. Totally, that. I totally accept that, and I, I wasn't attacking him for what he builds. Actually, yeah. uh, I wasn't attacking him at all. The thing I found disappointing about the interview that was the source of it, which was published in DZ, yeah. was that I felt that it was not a fair reflection of the picture as it stands. And what you're looking at here is a world, for example, arguing that it's not a problem to have to be building airports from a sustainability mm. point of view, because provided you have enough nuclear power, you can turn seawater into aviation fuel and fly with zero carbon. But <laughs> since we're not doing that, yeah. uh, it is a problem to have aviation. And it, it's really very widely accepted that that's a problem to, to use aviation on the scale we do, let alone to be expanding it rapidly. And therefore, the to use a position of influence to make arguments which I don't think are an accurate representation of the situation is, for me, problematic. The point you make about architects not having the agency to suddenly say, I'm only, I'm only going to build zero carbon from now on, is clearly absolutely and straightforwardly right. They are dependent on, you know, they are, they are designers with materials, the biggest of which is the money of somebody else. And there is no possibility of their unilaterally declaring independence from fossil fuels. That's, that's not an option. I totally accept that. They are, however, in a peculiar position relative to people like engineers, where engineers by and large are focused on, and this is a bit of a simplification, but by and large are focused on technical solutions to uh, reasonably clearly defined problems. Architects have a much more complex role in the building world, that a huge part of their role is cultural. They are particularly architects of the kind of international star status. They are partly hire foster and partners because they are a very, very reliable and uh, expert team of designers. And you partly hire them because they're a big name associated with a famous historic figure who's been producing really seriously interesting cutting-edge architecture, especially in the early years of kind of peak oil and proud of it, and no one needed to, no one yet realized, or very few people realized what a problem it was. To take the position that we are, as architects, we are only humble servants of, a, of, of the people with the money is, is not quite accurate in the sense that contractual terms it's true, but in cultural terms it's not. So whilst an architect doesn't have a freedom to say, I'm going to build your project with no concrete in it, or I refuse to build your project, you are going to retrofit the buildings that are already on the site, the nor are the things they say irrelevant. Yeah. And they have a responsibility. I think the, the, the responsibility of architects for me on this kind of thing, and it's easy to say because I'm not an architect, but I think the the area in which they can maintain their responsibility to the to the wider planetary problem whilst also maintaining their responsibilities to their client is by being totally frank with their client. They don't necessarily then have to tell on their client in 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 the broader media. That's a, a more difficult decision. But they should say to the client, if you spend 30% more, we can take 80% of the carbon out of this building, for example. Or are you sure you want to go ahead with the brief you are currently proposing because actually you've got the following opportunities to radically reduce the carbon intensity of this project that you're asking for. And it would lose you a certain amount of amenity 
but it would save you a bit of money here and it would save you enormous amounts of carbon over the project as a whole. Those kinds of conversations had with total clarity and offering the right option to the client puts the responsibility on the client. It means that the architect is doing the right thing to give the option. And if the client then says, I'm either going to sack you or you're going to build this with conventional concrete groundworks, then fine, you go ahead, you, you keep chiseling away any carbon you can from it, but there probably won't be that much you can do to fight back against that. Mm. By asking them, by telling them honestly, and by not greenwashing and saying, oh yes, this will be amazingly sustainable because it'll be zero carbon in operation, brackets, if the projections turn out to be totally accurate, if you use it exactly as I've specified and not as you probably will, and if we totally ignore embodied carbon, which is the tens or in some big projects, hundreds of thousands of tons of carbon dioxide that are released to make the materials, get them to the site and assemble them into a building. Where does the architectural community, though, fit into in terms of influencing political decisions and using political force to change property development? I mean, when I look, you know, Adam, we talk about this a lot with building codes, how difficult it is to get codes to change. In the engineering community, we understand energy. We understand the flows of energy. We get all of that kinds of stuff. And we can talk to our blue in the face with the architects. And we can try to work with political forces. But it just seems, for example, when I think about the membership of ASHRAE here in North America, roughly 55,000 members. But the AIA, the American Institute of Architects, have hundreds of thousands of members. You know, if there was ever a, an association of professionals that could put pressure on government, to change codes that would then require property developers to change their view of what buildings should look like. Like, where are they? Why are they not stepping up to the plate to do that? Some are, very strongly. I think there's an element of all of us from any sector and any context. If we're not kind of 18, we all look back at our lives and think there's a lot of avoidable carbon. And because we're realizing this fairly gradually, We've been told about this for at least 20, 25 years. We've been aware of it as a problem. But the awareness of how severe a problem it is and the scale of action required, I think, is something we're all waking up to individually at our own rate. Yeah. And if you are commercially dependent on and already years into projects that are dependent on conventional intense carbon. And after all, these aren't people who are, who've been sitting around thinking, what do I do with the other 40% of my time? They're all ridiculously busy. And adding this on top of all the other concerns and the constant fight for survival, either reputationally or in most cases, simply economically, is not an easy picture. I sit in my academic comfort zone with a salary that dribbles out to me every month, whatever I do and whatever I say. And that's a very, very privileged position. People who are running their own practices with their own mortgages and mortgages of their dependent staff and so on, and school fees and anything else they're trying to cover, don't have the same kind of headspace to confront this or to act on it. And therefore, I think you get a kind of, a kind of soft underexpressed resistance to action that I totally understand and that I don't feel blamed for, but which is a problem. 
Yeah. I think that what's needed is enormous amount of uh, is a, a small amount of understanding spread to an enormous number of people outside the profession. Mm. So one of the things that my book's aiming to do is to be I, I've written it in the most simple, clear, non fancy languagey way I can in an attempt to get it to be something that can be read by anyone who's a little bit interested in buildings and that will leave them by the end of it with a sense of what they need to vote for in the way of change, what they need to write to their uh, representatives in their local democratic context to say, what they need to say when their school or their university or their workplace is proposing a new building. Because it's not very complex. It's often not very appetizing, but it's very simple. And getting people to know what right and wrong look like so that when they walk past the kind of hoarding that we have all the time in the UK, which says the most sustainable development in your city. I'm bad. Yeah, and, and behind the hoarding is going up this enormous concrete core with huge amounts of aluminium and plastic cladding and enormous amounts of services that are designed to keep the building at a completely steady, even, not particularly interesting temperature and humidity, but through vast energy inputs. And sure, it's more efficient than the same equipment would have been 20 years ago, but it's still enormously energy hungry and totally unnecessary or very largely unnecessary. And this is probably where we're going to get into some, some elements of disagreement, because from where well, I am, ASHRAE is kind of the death star of, uh, of servicing. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I think... Well, one of the one of the problems we have is I think society as a whole has a fairly good intuition about what is appropriate use of energy and what isn't, except when it comes to buildings, right? So we do a presentation on, you know, you would never bring in a backhoe to plant your flowers. You know, you would never use, you know, a, up here in Canada where we've got tons of snow, you know, a road grader to clean your driveway. And we give multiple examples that people understand, like there's an, there's an industrial tool that has an industrial job and you would never bring it to do a non-industrial work. And intuitively, we're pretty good at that. Like you don't have to have an engineering degree or a science degree to understand you don't use a sledgehammer to pound in a finishing nail, right? Except when it comes to buildings and architecture. We have no, society as a whole has no intuition when it comes to that. And so you're right, getting a, some simple information to a lot of people is certainly one of the one of the approaches to fixing that. I was just going to say that one of the ones I use is that we've got a very controversial case at the moment in Britain where there's a an old shopping building, bits of which are from the 1930s and bits from later on in Oxford Street in London, London's big shopping street. And the proposal is to demolish it and replace it. And the new building will be more energy efficient than the old one in its current state. But they carefully haven't commented on what a deep retrofit would do. And, and the, the likelihood is, therefore, that that would be the most energy efficient option. But their replacement, because London's brought in a rule that for big projects, you now have to publish the embodied carbon. We know that the replacement will cost 40,000 tons of CO2. And that's just a number until you put it into terms of individual action. And at that point, if you think about somebody changing from hot showers to cold showers every day in order to save the fossil fuels that go into heating their shower, 
if you want to save 40,000 tons by, of carbon dioxide by taking cold showers every day, you have to do so for 680,000 years. <laughs> right. I just want to say right now, I want to publish a book with you, and it's going to be called Buildings, History and Data, working title, right? <laughs> and because the communication you're doing now is something architects and people don't normally do, Right. You're putting things in context. Most people struggle with building and the built environment because it's a cultural phenomenon and they can't put it in context in their daily lives. But when you say something like you just said, there's a fundamental communication problem here, right? Going back to Norman Foster, you hit a nail on the head for me there. Your point basically was putting this in uh, language my kids will understand. He's an influencer, right? So Rice, he might be constrained by the money and my lord upstairs. His influence way outstrips his budget, right? So what's he doing with that influence is your point, right? It's a squandered asset, right? So this the Marks and Spencer's building in London, let's call it what it is. Marks and Spencer's the best retail shop ever invented known to man. The only thing my wife and I miss from the UK, by the way. <laughs> so <laughs> that phenomenon fascinates me, right? Because the greatest untapped power in the world, and Gandhi was on the summit here, is consumer disobedience. If people do not accept it, that beats Norman Foster's power and British land's power and Oxford Properties' power, hands down, every day. If people refuse it and won't take it, it will not get done, right? And if yeah. you want proof of that, ask BlackBerry how it's going from compared to the, phone, the iPhone, right? Everything you need to know is there. So the MS story is really a cultural moment, I think, because that is culture and the public in general pushing back and saying, I think we are going to have to change what we're doing here. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the brilliant stroke of just getting it to be compulsory to publish yeah. the embodied carbon makes an enormous difference because there's so many people who are doing really unpleasant things in their lives in order to try. You know, cycling in London is morally right and terrifyingly dangerous and very polluted and very often rainy. People are cycling into work every day rather than take higher carbon forms of transport mm. in order to try and save carbon. They could drive a family car the distance to the sun on the amount of carbon it's taking to replace that shop, which is an easier saving. And the answer is that, you know, the, the carbon saving of not building things for developer profit alone is the easiest and biggest carbon saving you can possibly make if you can bring it about. See, we're agreeing a lot more than I thought we would here. Because we're fundamentally on the same side. I mean, it was 17 years ago when I was a development surveyor in London, but I was fascinated. I went from engineering to development surveyor. And, you know, I had 20 years in engineering. I thought I knew what I was doing. Turned out I did not know what I was doing. And my seven years working for M3, who was based on British Land Projects, was all about trying to make the project fit the budget, worrying about the cost of steel, cost of concrete, how many elevators can I get in and out of this building, you know, optimizing the floor plate, it was really a financial engineering job, and it took me a couple of years to get my head around the fact that property development isn't about physical properties, it's a financial game. That's that's always been the situation, and you're, yeah. you're calling it money, I would call it energy, because the yeah. uh, our financial system is a kind of scum on the, on the top of the surface of our energy system. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, mo the money, after all, is invented, which becomes incredibly clear when you do things like quantitative easing, and the energy is real. And the difficulty is that at the moment, we're allowing this invented money system 
to force us into energy use that is deranged. And we know we are, and we can't think our way into challenging stuff that we ourselves have invented within our own lifetimes, because most of our, you know, our, our financial system changes so quickly and so, so imaginatively, but it's, it's not able to think its way into not massively aggravating the ecological crises out of habit and, and path dependency and a refusal to rethink the goals. Abundance leads to laziness, right? I wouldn't say it's laziness. I mean, people are working fabulously hard. We, we have far less leisure yeah. than most hunter-gatherers had, yeah. had and in some cases still have. On the contrary, there's this weird thing that we, we just speed up the hamster wheel using our fossil fuels until our house prices mean that we have to work ourselves into ill health until far later in life than we would wish to. And with far greater compromises on the time we spend with our children and the other aspects of quality of life that we would look for with terrible effects on our health. So people who are healthy achieve it via driving a petrol powered car to a gym to run on electrically powered equipment in order to try and work <laughs> off the calories that we've got too easily from highly processed food. And that it doesn't feel to me like paradise. It's not that I have a kind of a sort of crude nostalgia for older times, but nor do I have a kind of sense that we've got everything right. And unfortunately, we have to disrupt this paradise in order to decarbonize it. I think there's potential for us to make the world a much less bonkers place and a much less unjust place in the process of our of our decarbonizing. Well, you know, it's funny. In one of our lectures, I talk about most of society don't appreciate the fact that in order to cool a building electronically or electrically with refrigeration requires fuel to be combusted to 1700 degrees C or heating to cool. No one understands that. And, and it's absolutely insane that we do that all over the world. So that, that's a good cool point. So far, too cold. Well, the, the ridiculous temperatures that I went to a, an architectural history conference in New Orleans and I had to keep a coat by the door of my room, a jacket by the door of my room so that I could run to my room and put it on whenever I came indoors because it was so cold in the conference hotel and uncomfortably hot outside. So there was some air conditioning needed. But why did it need to be whatever it was, 18 degrees or something? Why couldn't it indoors be 27 degrees if outdoors is 37 because it's actually pleasanter apart from anything else. And you can wear clothes that make the conflict between indoors and outdoors less extreme. You could notice, you know, when, when in the hotel, it was totally impossible to tell which American city we were in. I'd flown a long way with a lot of carbon to get to New Orleans. And in the hotel, I might as well not have bothered. You know, we could have just done it all via Zoom and, uh, and saved the, saved the transport and saved the air conditioning. And it's just, I have to say, Servicing engineering marketing has done the world some disservices in its yeah. promotion of these very narrow definitions of comfort, which aren't even nice. Do you know Lisa Heshong's book? Yeah, um, Thermal Delight. Thermal Delight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fabulous book. But Barbara, there's also a lot of myths that are around because I actually sit on ASHRAE SSPC 55, which is the Thermal Environmental Conditions for Human Occupancy Standard. And what people have defined not by our committee and not by the standard, but by people's applications of it, that there's a narrow band. But the reality is there's great diversity within the standards, as there is in ISO 7730. 
But that diversity exists when you know how to apply it. If you don't know how to apply it, you restrict yourself to a very narrow band. So I think it's really important that our listeners understand that there is a lot of myths that exist in the world of architecture, property development, engineering that exist because people don't understand how to apply the knowledge that we present in our standards. Uh, Barnabas, my advice to you is you must never move to North America. If you think <laughs> it's bonkers. I mean, the, the concept of rescheduling indoor air temperature to outside air temperature is, again, it's like selling leprosy. You're not giving it away. Do you know what I mean? It was published in North America. I'm not sure it's made in the UK. I'll send you a, an image of the copy. So basically, this is a journalist who went to Africa to find out where Apple and everyone sourced all that cobalt for, for EVs and their phones. And he was so horrified and affected by this. I saw a podcast with him. I thought he was going to cry at one point. He said it is just beyond horrific how bad. And my daughter was onto this a little while ago. She's convinced me to get like near new or secondhand electronics now, not buy the new iPhone every week. You know, I'm a Thatcher boy, right? I need the most toys. But, you know, this stopped me reading this would stop me buying an EV. Now, I'll send it to you because you, so I don't expect you to comment on it. But that's a little segue into, I just want to get your thoughts on nuclear power. So for me, again, I'll lay my stool out here and you will correct me after this, I'm sure. <laughs> it's not often you hear an Englishman say this, but sometimes I think we need to be more French. So France generate a lot of um, electricity using nuclear. So they're arguably one of the lower carbon developed economies in the world, right? So if you can... At the moment, gun to my head, if you said decarbonize at scale, I say, well, we got to go nuclear. What do you think about that? It doesn't seem to me to be a, a hugely desirable option in the sense that the the waste is around for a very, very long time, yeah. and we've seen how quickly things can change in the kind of political and military instability kind of senses, and that doesn't seem likely to decrease over the course of the coming centuries if climate change is going to have substantial impacts of forcing people into migration and famine and increasing natural disasters uncontrollable sea level rise that doesn't seem to me to be a world that's just looking for more nuclear waste <laughs> as, a, as the missing element so for me it's potentially some small part of the solution but as a solution on its own Firstly, it has a huge fossil fuel subsidy at the moment yeah. and a huge carbon footprint from the amount of concrete used in all nuclear facilities. It's a major part of, of the entire conception of their engineering. I'm um, not suggesting people build unmortared masonry nuclear power stations. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it feels like a very weird thing to be contemplating generating that much more dangerous waste and dangerous unstable facilities in a world that is destabilizing in order to avoid savings that aren't that bad on energy. We can drop our current fossil fuel use so enormously without catastrophic loss of quality of life. I agree with that. So what about, let me tweak that scenario for you. What about if Elon Musk takes that waste and shoots it into E.T.'s backyard or into the sun? So the waste disposal becomes, as a cost of putting things up there, right? There's a massive, I know there's a massive energy cost to get something into space, right? But let's say Elon Musk's trajectory continues and he can get things in space very cheaply and reuse rockets. 
and we could take all that nuclear waste and scoot it into the sun, it's gone, right? And all, possibly all the plastics as well. What happens then? Is it a bridging technology, maybe? Got quite a few ifs there, which include yeah. being able yeah. to fire essentially kind of dirty bombs through our atmosphere reliably enough not to drop any of them on us on cities. What is that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're use the word very cheaply. Well, it doesn't matter how cheaply it is. It's the energy cost that matters. So yeah. you could be doing it. You could be paying us for the right to do it. And it's still a problem if there's, if yeah. there's a carbon emitting energy technologies. And I don't find it easy to imagine how you get to the kind of level of thrust required to put very thick steel capsules. Cause I assume they would have to be yeah. into the beyond the atmosphere using zero carbon technologies that feels to me like a as though it would use quite a proportion of the energy generated in order to do that i mean i think that, that there's the old things about perpetual motion machines are true it's just not possible as everything requires inputs to yeah. achieve its outputs and at the moment we're not just looking at a problem with carbon we're also looking at a general problem of our pushing our planetary boundaries our ecological boundaries in a really problematic way, in a way that is in fact unique to my research so far. I'm trying to find if we've ever before had a widespread moment where human beings have knowingly depleted, exhausted and destroyed the resources they depended on for their for their existence. And I haven't found it yet. And in fact, what I have found is really cheering, which is that for the whole of the rest of human history, human beings have been incredibly sophisticated and subtle in the way that they've used culture to prevent them over exploiting right. resources. So if you look at something like traditional Inuit culture, the stories that they told about the relationships between humans and animals were not ones that science would accept as literal truth. So, for example, animals had immortal souls. And if you were wasteful or selfish with your resources, the souls of the animals you killed would go back and warn other animals not to come and be hunted by you. And that's not a story that scientists would regard as being satisfactory. But the outcome of it was that there was a culture of of caution and lack of wastefulness yeah. and lack of over over exploitation of resources that enabled population to survive in an, an, an environment which after all modern humans can only survive in through enormous energy inputs that the Inuit managed to get by without and the you know things like the fact that they had a belief in essentially a finite number of human souls in each group as well which meant that the name of the last person to die was given to the next baby to be born. And you slowed down your birth rate to keep the population pretty even. Because again, you couldn't support a bigger population, so you kept it to that size. That's and these are things that where, where the whole of religion and relationships between people and the way that you think about the world and the way you interact with the world are shaped around not destroying the things you depend on. And we are in this brief moment of this total shock that we've realized we're destroying the things that we depend on, but we haven't yet dealt with that. And if we are normal human beings, we will, because it becomes, as you start to really face it, it becomes intuitively repulsive to be doing things that are enormously destructive. You wouldn't drive your car over a baby, even if you knew you'd never be caught. 
and it becomes that kind of feeling of wrong yeah uh, when you when you start to really get it deep inside your inside your mind and it's why i find greenwashing so offensive because it's helping people to resist the natural process of realizing the scale of change required and starting to want it yeah so you're talking about culture and morality here impacting outcomes right which it does mm. always and has always done right arguably yeah. that's the premise of religion in a way Potentially, yeah. 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 Wow. I mean, there, but there are also cases where people had the right intentions. Like when I think about, you know, Vancouver, Canada, that going back 50, 60 years ago, maybe sooner, where the buildings were built to take advantage of the climate around that city at the time. So there wasn't air conditioning and they used natural ventilation yeah. to provide better air and cooling for the space. But here we are, 2021 that you know the climate changed significantly enough that you know 600 and almost 700 people died during a heat wave and 98 percent of those of them died inside buildings that were not it was never the intention of the architects and the engineers at the time to create these ticking time bombs but that's what we're dealing with i trust that wasn't on the front of architects journal (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) no and then and that is and that's what we find with a lot of buildings that were that are existing in inventory, you know, that we are seeing. I like to use the term climate changes of consequence and a consequence is death. You know, like that is a, you, that's a hard one to avoid. And, yeah. you know, and we're starting to see it when we see consequences of change. You know, when communities in the north see the permafrost melt from underneath their feet and they have to move after culture centuries of living there raising generations and generations of families, you know, and we see, so there are the consequences that we're starting to see are very real, but the intentions that going back were, that was never intended. That was no one ever imagined that that was what would happen. No, but the intentions, it's pointless blaming people, even our own generation for the problem. And blame is in any case a paralyzing emotion as is guilt. What we need to do is, Firstly, be totally honest with ourselves about the situation, about the things we're struggling to adapt to, the things we're grieving for, the things we're not adapting at all to, and recognizing the areas in which we can manage to make significant adaptations and the ones we're struggling on, talking about them honestly with friends and loved ones. Because, you know, you start to realize that so much more is possible than you initially feel. The first reaction is frozen jammed kind of we're stuck we've got this enormous tanker to turn around and i've only got this tiny little teaspoon of a paddle how am i going to make any difference and then you start to realize that you don't have to be as much part of it as you are that you can start to improve in certain areas that you're still behaving quite badly in others but that it's starting to bother you more which is in some ways a positive sign that you've suddenly find that you've influenced some friends and they've They've taken some little action as well, and that these things snowball. Change is always geometric rather than linear yeah. in nature, yeah. and this is a, a change which needs to be geometric and needs to be spectacularly fast. But there's every reason to believe it can be if we can avoid a level of culture war that means that half the population deliberately destroy the planet to annoy the other half, which feels like a believable outcome at the moment. Sadly, yeah, I agree on that. Listen, we're coming up on time. We normally finish with a couple of quick fire questions. 
I'll jump in first, actually, if you don't mind, because I just want to go back to your your first book, Raw Concrete. So obviously you've had an intellectual and you're still on an intellectual and career journey, right? But you started off as a fan of brutalism, which is clearly uh, high carbon. Now, that's a sunk cost, right? Those brutalist buildings. So I presume you're a fan of retrofit and keeping them around. Yeah, hugely. Retrofit in countries like Canada and America and the UK, retrofit is the biggest material for sustainable architecture. You use the buildings you have, you work out what you do with them, not just in terms of changing their fabric, but in terms of changing how you use them to make them work as well as you can and with as little carbon as you can. And that is your basic assumption. It should be a humiliating admission of creative failure to demolish a building rather than a sign of investment and pride. I couldn't agree more with that. Retrofit is the opportunity for everyone going forward, in my opinion. It's also very design intense. So from the point of view of the design industries, it's mad that they still encourage kit-built buildings that they can throw together in a computer program and that require very little design time. And that meanwhile, they fear retrofit that requires design time, but much less in the way of industrial materials. Yeah, agreed, 100%. So if you had to, I always like to ask our guests, you know, Occasionally, if they were giving the commencement speech at a famous architectural school somewhere around the world, London or, or New York, and you're talking to the next, the 2023 20, graduating students, what would your words of advice be to them? I would spend quite a lot of it encouraging them not to feel too eaten up with guilt about the conditions of an industry that they're joining that is currently 40% of the anthropogenic climate changing emissions, but not through their fault and that they won't immediately be able to practice at zero carbon, almost certainly. And then I would go on to encourage them to use their knowledge and their charismatic ability to communicate, which is what architecture students end up with in a very disproportionate quantity of cases, to spread understanding to people, both their clients and the wider electorate, in such a way that they get support for the changes that they know need to be made because it's not a problem they can fix on their own, but they do have agency at two levels. One is to chip away at it in the specific building, and the bigger and more powerful one is to push, push, push for change. There's an amazing organization in Britain called ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, which is mostly made up of mid-career architects who deeply care about this stuff, but are, for economic reasons, working in practices that are producing normal buildings. And so they spend their daytime putting very high carbon structures and their evenings and weekends finding out what they should be doing and campaigning for it with a kind of fact-based, calm, courteous, unanswerable clarity that I admire more than I can say. They're just the, the perfect campaigning organization for me. They, they don't get involved in political side-taking. Everything's always based on very good quality research. So they say, well, you could reduce such the carbon footprint by 40% by doing the following. So why don't you make that the regulation rather than saying, oh, you people, you're so awful. So I would argue for courteous engagement with anyone who has any agency, assuming that they have good motives and that they're not a horrible villain, because in most cases, they at least have the ghost of some once upon a time good motives. And they like to feel they have good motives. And most people genuinely do. They just aren't necessarily the right ones for this situation. But you can help them towards it. Excellent. I like that. That's great. Yeah, thank you. 
So if Astro is a Death Star, ACAM is like the the rebels, right? <laughs> On the Millennium Falcon <laughs> flying around. Yeah. I like that. I love that a lot. I know you love that Ashray Death Star thing, not <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think once you know the people, I mean, I've, I've been in part of the organization for many, many decades. And, you know, the engineers that I know that are my colleagues very much share, you know, your position. And part of the problems that we have is that, is that we work at a speed that oftentimes is not matched to the urgency that's needed. Mm-hmm. That is part of that has to do with making sure that when we do put out statements, whether they're related to the indoor environment or energy or whatever, that they are well vetted. And it's the vetting process that takes time. And and there are protocols for it to make sure that, you know, we do communicate the right amount of the right information. Anyways, I don't know any villains within ASHRAE personally. Most of them are very much on the good side. I genuinely don't think that these things have come about through individual villainy at any stage in the history. The joke about the Death Star is is, is obviously a frivolous one. The issue with any organization or individual who was seriously influential in the 20th century is that the whole dynamic of the 20th century, so all my heroes of the 20th century are in the same position. Luc Corbusier, who I think is one of the most towering geniuses in the history of architecture, is a towering genius in a context of making high carbon technologies unbelievably sexy. And therefore, he is hugely problematic for architects now trying to get away from his charismatic influence. That's the, the context of my joke. He is equally the Death Star. And in neither case were they doing it for reasons of actual evil intent or in conditions where it was knowable what was going on. But the end result of it is a situation that is really big and challenging to turn around and they obviously have a huge role in managing to do so i mean that's a dichotomy right you know we meant well but it's just how things manifest is how they manifest right yeah yeah don't unown that ashray quote it is awesome (laughs) (laughs) anyway listen boss thank you so much for coming on i really enjoyed the conversation that was excellent man yeah thank you very much pleasure pleasure thanks for the invitation The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you passionate about the built environment? Do you want to learn from the industry's most inspiring, intelligent, and accomplished professionals? Then the companion to this podcast, Wisdom of the Property Crowd, is just the book for you. From Edifice Complex podcast interviews, this book distills the critical thinking, insight, and ideas of some of the property industry's most accomplished and respected practitioners. Each chapter is a synopsis of an hour-plus interview, capturing the takeaways and insights, including diagrams and images, to help explain concepts and ideas. There's also a brief bio about the interviewee and a QR code linked to the podcast episode for those that want to explore further. These are the mentors you wish you had in college. Wisdom of the Property Crowd by Adam Muggleton. Available on Amazon worldwide. And now, back to the show. So, Adam, you were uh, tickled pink, as it were, about this uh, interview? Yeah, God, I really love that. So I went from, like, nerd breakdance fight with him to really starting to admire him, actually. And he's done, he's mushed together two of my favorite things, history and particularly the Romans and the built environment, architecture. Because I am actually, even though I've got engineering background, I'm an architecture fan, right? Form, function. I see architecture as a form of high art as well. Which is why I get offended when I see ugly, horrible buildings. You know? Right. 
So for yeah. me, he's got that all going on in his career. And he's early in his career, man. He's got a big influence, I think. Yeah, I love how he's converted energy through time yeah. on a per person, on a per capita basis. And yeah. that statistic he threw out about, you know, ancient times versus seven people today. I can't remember. What was the number? I don't remember the exact was, number. I wrote it down. It was so strange. 78 million man hours in antiquity to build something is equivalent to seven people, not households, in the USA today. Yeah. So you, I mean, you think about that, right? When we think about, well, think about yourself, right? An individual and the things that you use, the things that you consume, the things that you hang on to, the things that you throw away, and all of that energy and time that goes into to making it. It's just yeah. mind-boggling when you start yeah. to break it down. And he's done a great job of putting it into terms that people can understand. I that probably that. makes him a great teacher because architects and engineers tend to be visual, and he's finding a way there to help you visualize something as well, right? Because as soon as he started yeah. saying 78 million man hours, my brain immediately went to the pyramids and, you know, Hebrews like bringing big stones up, you know. That's how you get things to stick in people's mind. The other point he made very well there, subtly, was, yes, you know, there is there are constraints on architects through budget and, you know, clients, but the influence footprint they have is huge. Yeah, I love that dialogue that you were having with him on that. Yeah. You know, the, the influential voice that architects have, but it's underutilized. Yes, very much You so. know, and I, I, I really you know, through maybe these podcasts that we do and others around the world that the world of architecture and design start to realize that they do have a voice and collectively, if they can influence the political powers to be, to create mandatory change, yeah, that that becomes the corral for property developers to, listen, you got to build within these requirements. This isn't a free-for-all anymore. It can't be continue to be a free-for-all. But if you're twiddling the dials here, right, developers are developers. They can do what they do. They're profit-seeking entities, right? And that's very clear to understand. But if you can dial up the consumer disobedience, mm -hmm. favoritism towards retrofits, which is starting to happen in the UK, and dial up the influence of the architects in particular and the design teams in general, that could tip a balance, right? Yeah, Because uh, the developers are going to respond to the culture and the demands of the market, right? So, you know, the architects are probably more in touch with that in some ways, culturally, certainly. There is something going on right now in the Zeitgeist, right? There is, we're at a cultural moment here where baby boomers are starting to become less powerful, right? They're, they're moving into retirement. They're not the villains here, but, you know, there is a change of the guard going on. And with that change comes a change in culture normally, right? Yeah. It's, you know, what was going through my mind was when you get into, um, residential areas yeah that you know wartime housing right there so these houses are sitting on very valuable land because most of it was built around the city core yeah and you know people would buy one house in one street and then they would tear it down and yeah. then put up a brand new rectangular flat roof lots of glass building <laughs> and that one property then at that one moment set the benchmark for all of the new buildings that will get torn down and built on that street. And we've seen it, you know, in city after city after city where rather than retrofitting the house that's there, they tear it down and they put yeah. up. Yeah, that's going know, on all around me right now. Buying now these yeah. like 1960s bungalows on big plots 
knocking it down, putting a McMansion up. That is going on everywhere I look right now. Yeah. And yet when you go into areas, the influential areas of wartime era, those houses, a lot of them have actually retained their architecture, but they've been modified to better windows, better insulation, tidying them up. They've kept the original designs. It's quite beautiful. And I, I get far more enjoyment walking or riding my bike in an old neighborhood that has retained its architecture but has improved it rather than driving into a new neighborhood with all these new boxy glass flat roof homes soulless as well actually i think yeah you're right that's exactly what it is they're soulless soulless and you know it when you're in it right it just affects you at a deep level i got places like me i don't like walking down the roads or driving down they're just like soul sucking places wastelands but i actually think to sort of wrap this up i actually think the real opportunity for the built environment market is retrofits you know if i was a speculator now in a property developer with oodles of money i'd buy all these old glass skyscrapers because one you're not going to be able to put up a glass skyscraper anymore or it's going to go away certainly it's starting to go away in the uk you're going to own that asset, right? There'll be a scarcity value to it. And then you can just slowly start deep retrofitting them. So you're going to say to someone, I know you want that corner glass office. I own one, but there's a deal. You're going to pay more for it, but I'm going to retrofit it and make it as energy efficient as possible. It's interesting. He brings everything back to energy as well, because there is a, a move to get away from that and look at everything holistically, right? But energy drives a lot of stuff, right? It's like, what he's saying, energy is a prime driver. You can be as holistic as you like, but that's a yeah. prime input, right? Well, I like what he, because he, I, I, I hope I'm getting his words correct. He said, money is the scum on top. <laughs> so, you know, money, was, money is an invented metric. Yeah. Energy is not. Energy is yeah. real, right? Yeah, that's like saying uh, currency is paper and gold is real money. That's the same thing, right? Energy yeah. is real and fiat money. You can... You know, QE to infinity, but at the end of the day, energy is what matters. The cost yeah. of it, the availability of it, the density of it, right? It all, yeah. that's what drives the whole economy, ultimately, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting, man, because you're getting into some real connections here between history and resource availability and, and pollution and the whole economy. You know, the word circular economy actually is a very underrated concept because everything is connected and circular. But yeah, we're not really grasping that as a culture yet. I think the academics grasp it, but culturally we haven't really got our head around it. Yeah. Anyway. I can tell you what, you know, a guy like Barnabas, he's the kind of guy, for me anyways, that if I got if I got stuck on a plane or a train or a boat yeah. somewhere, yeah. be sitting next to him, because you would be able to have a chat with him that would last. Hours, hours, hours. Listen, man, if, if you've got the stones to write a, job, a history of anything from prehistory to now, you know, <laughs> there's yeah. something going on there, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, man, that was awesome. I really enjoyed that. I shall yeah. see you in the next one. All right, Adam. Cheers, man. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. 
Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.